this kind of weekend is always important for me too, not just because, you know, it's kind of the appointment year and it's the week of VBS and all that, but it's also the anniversary of my coming to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Um, July 2nd, uh, 1991, I knelt at the altar at Delanco Camp and asked Jesus to come into my heart and to, uh, to be at the very center of who I was and what I was about. And so uh, Delanco, you know, the camp meeting at Delanco Camp was always around July 4th. And so uh, for those first three or four years of my faith, I spent at Delanco over the 4th of July. And so uh, there was something for me that was always kind of built into what it means to be free in Christ, um, correlating to what it meant to celebrate the birth of a nation. And, you know, and so privileged we are to be, you know, citizens of, you know, the United States and the freedoms that we enjoy and, and everything that's a part of that. But then as it relates to us as individuals inside of what Christ has done for us, I want us to think about that freedom just for a couple of minutes this morning as kind of an intro to communion together. You see, freedom is not just the absence of rules and restrictions. You could do whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want, that nobody can say anything to you or about you or, or ask anything of you. Freedom, rather, is the removal of restrictions so that you can proactively and intentionally Make choices about what and who is going to be authoritative inside of your life. In other words, it's not the absence of boundaries or authority, but it's, it's the, the ability to willfully choose what is going to be authoritative and who is going to be authoritative inside of your life. Because, you know, you know the game of basketball works best when there are lines, when the hoop is the same circumference at both ends, when, every, when there's a consistency, when there's, you know, enough rigidity to rein in what the game is actually meant to be versus not meant to be. And so your life and my life is not meant to be a free-for-all that we could do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, but what or who is going to remain in authority over us. Sometimes from the outside, it could look like, and let's face it, for some people it is this way, that the Christian faith is not uh, the arrival of freedom and empowerment for who Jesus is in our midst. For some, the arrival of Christianity inside of our life just brings more expectations, more rules, more rituals, more things to do. And so I don't, I never had this conversation with my parents, but um, I told you, you know, that my family, we were Christian because it meant, you know, that we weren't some other religion, but we were Christians who just didn't go to church. We believed in the Bible, we just never read it. We tried to be nice people, and we were Methodists, but we never really went to church. So when I came to faith, I think initially that was celebrated or at least affirmed by my parents. After all, you should be a good Christian kid because it's going to help, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever inside of your life. I think, though, as they began to understand what was taking place inside of my life, it maybe didn't have as positive of a connotation. Because I think after a while, what they saw is now there are more things that he wants to do and be a part of. There's an entire new set of things that he won't do or is restricting from his life. There are now like more things that are kind of getting in, in the way and overtaking that maybe poor little Mikey, when he went to Delanco camp, got too much religion. I don't know if you've ever you know, heard that kind of phrase before. Because, again, from the outside in, freedom would look like less. 
Freedom would look like autonomy to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, and nobody can say anything to you. But do you know, when I asked Jesus to come and take up residence inside of my heart, a few things began to change. There were some things morally that I did not do that previously were either ambiguous or non-issues. There were some activities inside of my life that all of a sudden now church was not a good thing to do once in a while if you can get there, but became a commitment inside of my life to be in morning worship. I became interested in Bible studies in small groups and began to kind of fill my life with things of God. From the outside in, you would look and say, Mike, who was trying to be a good student and, you know, in Boy Scouts and played football and trying to be a good son and a good brother, now all of a sudden have just been added onto these religious commitments and expectations and requirements. Let me tell you about what was taking place on the inside. There was freedom. Because for years, I had wondered of all these different things that are taking place inside of my life and family and friendships and school and Boy Scouts and athletics and all these other things, what would actually be at the center? Would the center be when I could finally get into college? Because it seems like when you're a kid, everything is like, you you better do this, you get into college, you better join this, you know, activity because it looks good on a college, you know, all those kind of things. Was the goal going to be that when I got into college, everything would be good? And I was like, no, because after all, college is just college, and you're there for four years, and then you go somewhere else. Would the goal be that when I get, you know, that job, you know, if you go to college and you get the job, it's going to be, you know, at the very centerpiece. And I looked around, and I was like, I don't know who many people who in a healthy way were adequately defined by their jobs. Maybe if I found the right person, I settled down and I got married, I had some kids, that that would be the center because after all, and, and we hear this, and this is part of you know, the American dream and one of those things that is maybe not right completely, but it, it's not all wrong either is, after all, family is everything, right? Family is everything. Except that I noticed even inside of healthy families, there were people who didn't rely on their spouse to be their everything and their all, or they weren't trying to live vicariously through their kids, but there seemed to be something different at the center of their life. And I thought there had to be something different. And so at the Lyco camp, when I knelt at the altar and I asked Jesus to come in, it wasn't like instantly everything became better, but over time I began to see that this is exactly what I had been looking for, that I needed a center. And at the center of my life became Christ and became his kingdom and became his idea for them what life looks like and relationships look like and how things function best. And while it looked like there were more restrictions in my life, it was the first time I had experienced true freedom inside of my 15 years. Freedom is not being able just to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, but willfully making a choice of saying who and what is going to be authoritative inside of my life and living underneath that by choice and by surrender. And so I'm grateful, not just for the experiences that I've had, just me and God, but the experiences that I've had within the church, small groups that have welcomed me in, uh, a pastor who took me under his wing and, you know, for a number of years, it seemed like when, when he was going somewhere like Delanco or, or somewhere else, he, he took me with him in his relational discipleship inside of my life. 
paved the way for, for God's calling into ministry to take place. I'm grateful for, you know, friendships that, that formed through camp and, you know, for the investment, you know, of a community of people at Asbury College and all sorts of things that I think in, inside of our life, if, if your Christian life is defined by just your me and Jesus experiences, you're missing something. And I think if your Christian experience is only defined by what you do and the activities and the things that fill your life, you're missing it, but it has to be both. Your direct connection to God and the way that other people build into your life and you build into their life. Intimacy with God and real, honest, authentic relationships with other people. And so Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry and he had one final evening to spend with his disciples. And I think there's a couple of things, and these are going to serve really as our, our questions and really as our challenge, not just for today or this week, but really for the summer that I want us to think about. And I think they're illustrated through Jesus' last evening with the disciples. And there's two questions, and it's simply this, and maybe this is something that we should always think about. How are you creating time and space to connect with God? Now, that's worth asking 52 weeks out of the year, but it's especially worth asking when our schedules get a little bit interrupted, a little bit different, when it's summer, when it's vacation season, when all these things, uh, how are you creating time and space to connect with God? This is not just something to do at Christmas time and Easter time. But the second then goes along with it, how are you creating time and space to help other people connect with God? Because I suspect if you told your story, you would say, you know what, there were some powerful experiences between me and God, but they were made possible, or they were amplified, or they were furthered along by other people creating time and space inside of my life so that I could grow, so that I could ask questions, so I could experience a depth inside of my relationship with who God is, not just, it's not just you and Jesus, and it's not just activity, but it's this connection that kind of goes together. And so in Luke chapter 22, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So this is, again, probably a story that you've read either in regard to communion or Maundy Thursdays, we enter Holy Week. It's a story that we at least know well, but there's a couple of things I want us to notice. Jesus took time and energy to prepare for this final meal. This was not casual, haphazard, uh, you know what, they're going to kill me tomorrow. Oh, wait, we got to eat the Passover first. Let's, you know, this was not, you know, passing through the drive-thru. This was something that took preparation. Now, there's two people that are referred to, the man carrying the jar of water and the owner of the house. I don't know if Jesus knew either or both, if he had had conversations with either or both, or if this was just one of those, like, you know, 
Jesus things where he was kind of like, oh yeah, by the way, you're going to go and see a guy with water, follow him, he's going to go to a house. And it was one of those things that just kind of like aligned because he's Jesus and he can do that. Or if it was something where he had had a conversation before. Because this Passover feast was so important if you were Jewish, you know, inside of your faith, inside of your heritage, inside of your ancestry, this was the night where all families were getting together to celebrate this meal. It would have been extremely difficult at the last minute to say, hi, I'm Jesus and I need, you know, I have a party of 13, you know, coming at seven o'clock and I need you to prepare a space. Like all the spaces would have been accounted for because this meal was that important. It's basically the summary of Thanksgiving dinner and Holy Week Easter Sunday morning service put together, the Passover feast. So I don't know what happened exactly in the preparation, but I know that Jesus thought about this, and it was that important that he made preparation. Because time and space and people matter. This last evening that he would spend with his disciples, these men who would become the cornerstone of the church, after walking with them for three years, he had just a few hours left and on this evening of Passover, he would take this meal that they knew so well, and he would, you know, inject into it new meaning and symbolism about who he is and what he was about to do for them. This night was significant, and it was worth putting some time and some effort into. And so Jesus thought about it beforehand. But not just Jesus, but then he invites two of his disciples, and not just any two, I would think if it were time where, you know, you needed to send two people along and set up some chairs and fluff some pillows and do the things that need to be done, maybe you choose, you know, Thaddeus, maybe James the Lesser, Simon the Zealot, get him out of the way, like whatever it is. But he takes, of, of the big three, Peter, James, and John, let's face it, we refer to the big two, Peter and John, because we don't hear as much about James. But of Jesus' three closest disciples, he takes the big two, this meal is that important, and he says, here's what I want you guys to do today. Find the guy with the jar, follow him to the house, say to the owner, and then make preparations. Make sure there's enough seats, make sure the temperature's okay, make sure it's clean, maybe you're going to roast some lamb, maybe you're going to, you know, whatever it is, like the extent of preparations, that was their job for the day because it was that important. Now, I wonder... When you turn the scripture over to Acts chapter 4, after the resurrection, Peter and John go to the temple, and they pass a guy that they had seen several times before. They're broken and, and lame and just at the entrance to the temple. Something happens, and it says that they saw him and they stopped. And they had this conversation that basically ends with, you know, we don't have any silver or gold, but what we have we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And then, you know, they get into trouble for it, and they have to go before the leaders and, and everything else. But I wonder if what they saw is, over three years, we saw Jesus many times speak to the masses and then stop for the one. We saw Jesus many times do things in big groups, but then we also saw him stop and give his attention to the broken and the outcast and the needy. 
And here they are on the day, they don't know it at the time, but the day before his death. And he sends them to prepare a room and prepare a meal and to be hosts for what they would eventually remember is one of the most significant moments inside of their life, a moment where Jesus washes their feet, a moment where Jesus tells them about his death, a moment where Judas leaves and goes to betray him. So much would happen on this evening because they took time to stop and prepare the time and the space and for the people. That means a couple of things to me this morning. And it goes back to those initial couple things. How are you creating time and space to connect with God? And how are you creating time and space to help other people connect with God? Because on that last evening, Jesus was concerned with both things, that he would have close, personal, intimate time with his followers, with his friends, inside of that final evening to convey some final things that they would need and they would treasure. But I think he also, for... Peter and John wanted to give them a model of what ministry looks like. Because ministry looks like oftentimes doing logistical work to take to create time and space for other people to connect with God. That's why when you host a small group, you prepare a lesson, but you also clean your house. That's why you have people over. That's why you make meals to people who just came out of surgery. That's why you, you reach out and you send a text and you make a phone call. Even someone in my position, even if I go over, which I'm about to do in about five minutes, if you take a 40-hour work week, I do this one-fortieth of the time that I spend in ministry. Meaning there's a whole lot more than just standing before a multitude that if God wants to use you to make a difference, it's probably not going to be on a pulpit or, you know, on a street corner preaching. It's probably going to be that you radically and intentionally and sacrificially engage in the life of the people around you. The reason that's important today is it's summer. You have the opportunity to host people in your backyard. You're going to have the opportunity to go on vacation, possibly with people you don't really get along with all the time. The schedule is going to be a little bit different. Maybe even if your schedule looks the same and you continue just to work like you always work and you don't have any trips planned and it's just more of the same, there is something different about these months that I think is a little bit more conducive to relationship. There's a little bit more time, a little bit more space. Could it be during these months that God would not only continue to grow your faith, but use you in the life of somebody else? Now, a couple of things just to make that a little bit more practical. And there are things that we kind of saw out of this, but I think sometimes you just need to stop and listen. Now, maybe instead of stop, I should say sit, because again, it's the investment of time. Sometimes you communicate, you know, just by not your answers, but your willingness to sit and have conversations and hear people out, even if you disagree with what they're saying the entire time and you're biting your tongue and you're trying not to roll your eyes and and you're doing all that. Do people know that you care and that you listen? I don't know if you know this yet, but if you, on your computer, you can click and open an application or on your phone, you, you can open something 
and it'll take you to this thing on the internet where you can find answers for everything. I don't, I don't know if you, you've discovered that yet, but it's kind of a cool thing. Um, you know, this internet. People aren't resistant to following Jesus because they can't find the answers. People are resistant to following Jesus either because there's some aspect of pain inside of their life, there's been a negative experience inside of their life, they've never seen somebody with an authentic relationship with Jesus. Yes, there may be academic questions, there may be philosophical questions that lie underneath that. But trust me, the reason the people that you know and love aren't in relationship with Jesus isn't because they can't find the answer to their Bible question from 1 Samuel. And the solution lies in relationships. Not because you have all the answers, but because you're willing to actually stop and keep your mouth shut and show that you care and listen, even if you disagree with what they're saying. Because I think Jesus spent a lot of time with people who were saying idiotic things that were wrong and had bad theology, but he welcomed them anyway, and they loved being around him. The second maybe just goes along for that is, I think you, could, you can summarize ministry with the word time. Creating time for people. When you create time, you create, create room for conversation, dialogue, experiences, memories. How we use our time, it, that's your most precious commodity, more than your influence, more than your money, more than your, you know, your, your fancy back deck of your house, whatever it is, your most precious commodity is your time. How are you investing your time for the kingdom of God? And then the last is, we, we talked about this last week, you know, I mentioned to you this guy James Engel came up with this Engel scale of how people move either towards Christ or, or towards maturity in their relationship with Christ. Your invitation is to not solve every problem, convert every family member, but just to simply be part of the process. That somebody maybe is a little bit less oppositional to things of faith after they've, they've spent an hour with you. Somebody is encouraged in their faith because of your influence and your love and your kindness. Recognize that God is up to something, and you may not be at the epicenter of somebody crossing the line of faith, but you can be part of the process. So, as we head towards communion, let me remind you, you don't have to be a member of our church to receive communion, because Jesus extended an open invitation uh, that if you'll seek after me, that if you draw near to me, that I'll draw near to you. And so communion becomes an opportunity not just to affirm our faith, but to seek after and to create time and space for God to move inside of our life and for us to connect with him. So just a couple of minutes, the ushers will kind of point to you when it's your time, and you can come down and take a piece of bread and take the cup. And if you want to kneel at the altar for a little bit, if you want to take them back to your seat, if you just want to take it right then and there, allow this to be a time where also we can connect with God in a meaningful way. But I want you to think about another aspect of that, and we don't often think about this in communion. The same way as Jesus invites you to a table with a meal that has been prepared, significance and meaning to what that meal means as an invitation to know and relate to him. What tables can you create this summer? Maybe they're picnic tables. Maybe they're dining room tables. Maybe it's a car ride with a 
bag of takeout food and it's not a table whatsoever, but what tables can you create the time and space for people to reconnect with their Heavenly Father? And are you willing to be part of that process of what God wants to do, not just in you, but through you in the life of the people around you? So I'm going to pray, and then uh, those who are assisting are going to come up, and then you'll have the opportunity to come and receive the elements of communion as we close our service together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the great links that you have gone to to reconnect with us. That Scripture says that while we were far from you, that Jesus died for us. God, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we thank you for uh, the intimacy that's possible that we can know you, that we can relate to you. Lord, that we can have a relationship with you and that you can speak inside of our lives. And God, I would pray this morning that as we close this service, that you would come and meet with us. For some of us, we need a word of encouragement. We need to know that you're with us. For some of us, maybe there's there's been this burning and, and itching within us to make a difference for you and for your kingdom, and we don't know how. Maybe even this morning there'd be a, a word of direction. Lord, for some, maybe it's even just a reminder of how much you have loved us that you gave your life for us. Maybe perhaps today could be a day of salvation for one who has been far from you or, or walking around on the margins of faith that today could be a day of salvation. Lord, whatever it is that you want to do or communicate, we invite you to speak to us and to move within us, even as we receive communion together this morning. Come, Lord Jesus, we offer you this time. In your name, uh, the name of Jesus, the name above all other names, we pray these things. Amen.